0: You're listening to the CyberWire network, powered by N2K. Um, there's been a renaissance in, in that space with more modern techniques, and as brands look for more privacy-forward ways or, or safe, future-proof options. Um, they're embracing some some more traditional techniques that, that have gotten a new look.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the FTC's bold new legal strategy against big tech. I've got the story of data brokers selling information on pregnancies. And later in the show, Matt Voda from OptiMine on what a federal privacy act may mean for brands. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. All right, Ben, we got a full show this week. Why don't you uh, start things off for us with some stories?
2: Sure. Uh, So I'm discussing uh, big tech and their dominance over smaller markets. Again, this week, common theme for us. (laughs) Uh, But this story really caught my eye. It's from the New York Times and it's entitled FTC Chair Upends Antitrust Standards with Meta Lawsuit. Hmm. So, Lena Kahn was just confirmed to be the new chair of the FTC. She's new in her uh, position. I guess it's been about a year now. Yeah. And she is taking aggressive action in trying to break up the uh, market share or the monopoly power of big tech companies. And she's doing so in a rather innovative way. Hmm. So, Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, purchased a VR fitness startup called Within um having never used uh vr fitness technology and barely knowing what that would even look like uh, i can imagine <laughs> it's a great product not necessarily something i would use yeah uh This is part of uh, Meta's effort to create the so-called metaverse. Right. Um, They want to corner the market on the
1: metaverse or or at least get a
2: jump start on other competitors, right? Exactly. So we're all rolling our eyes. Uh, (laughs) For most of the past 100 years, this is not something that regulators would challenge. A large company purchasing a small company in a developing market, one where you can't really tell who the big players are. You don't know how the market is going to develop. That means that the issue is not ripe for legal challenges. At Mm. least that's been the traditional understanding. Okay. The FTC is filing a lawsuit to uh, challenge this acquisition. And this is upending decades of antitrust standards. Mm. What the New York Times is saying is that this could be a wholesale shift in the way Washington enforces competition across corporate America. And basically the notion is you can apply antitrust law uh, prospectively – before you wait for the market to mature to the point where you know which companies hold all the power. Hmm. Uh, Big tech companies are obviously terrified uh, of this new (laughs) development. And to be honest, you know, I always try and understand both sides to every issue. Their claim about stifling innovation I think has a lot of merit to it. If you don't let a market develop uh, naturally without the involvement of regulators – you might stop an industry from bubbling up that otherwise would have would would have um, happened absent mm-hmm. the regulatory action. Hmm. So Meta purchasing this small VR fitness company could really develop the market for the fitness company. It would allow uh, the startup that that came up with this idea uh, to make money, which would encourage other startups to create innovative, interesting products that Meta or any other big tech company would want to buy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one side of it. But the other side Mm -hmm. of it is if we are really uh, going to change the way we look at big tech and focus on protecting the interest of the consumer, then I think it is important for our regulators to act prospectively and try and stop big tech monopolization before it happens. Because what's happened traditionally in the past is Facebook – or uh, as it existed prior to its meta days, would buy up some small startup company, maybe something like an Instagram or a, you know, you have Google purchasing a young startup called YouTube. Right. And it may seem like a small acquisition at the time, but it puts them, these big tech companies, on the path to acquiring uh, monopoly power. Hmm. So I I think there is certainly a justification for this type of pre-enforcement. The legal challenge here is not likely to succeed. Obviously, you have to go to court. <laughs> okay. and the FTC right. <laughs> isn't, a, uh, isn't a dictatorship, yeah. uh, so they can't just make these decisions. And I think most legal scholars see this strategy as probably doomed uh, toward failure. And not to get too much into the legal weeds, but basically the Constitution says that courts can hear, quote, cases and controversies. And one element of that is that the case has to be ripe in order for— uh, a court to hear it, meaning the issues have to be uh, developed and presented in a way that there's an actual live controversy, not something that's anticipated that might happen in the future. The general standard is you have to challenge something that's uh, either already happened or that is certainly impending. Mm -hmm. And since we don't know whether there is actually going to be a monopoly uh, or some kind of antitrust violation, uh, I think Courts are likely to say that um, this this case is not yet ripe, according to our jurisprudence, and they'll probably throw the lawsuit out. Hmm. Um, But the strategy itself is interesting and I think reflects the FTC's uh, newfound or, I guess, rediscovered commitment to protecting the consumer by cutting down on the market share of big tech companies. So
1: is this? do we view this as being kind of a shot across the bow from the FTC of just
2: putting the industry on notice? Yeah, and that's how some of these legal theories develop. Sometimes you file a lawsuit that's doomed to fail, hmm. um, but you are getting the theory out there and maybe eventually enough judges will be appointed that are amenable to this position. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if it's not going to succeed the first time, it might succeed down the line when the legal theory has been developed, you have law review articles written about it, uh, the academic world, uh, it, its interest is, is, is peaked. I think sometimes that's how new legal theories develop. You can't just write about them uh, theoretically. You kind of have to try your hand at an actual case Mm -hmm. uh, to get it into court, to get a judge to actually consider it, and that's what's happening here. Uh, Hmm. It it is a real break from tradition. Mm -hmm. Regulators generally rubber stamp these types of purchases. Um, 2006, Google buys YouTube, bam, rubber stamp. Facebook 2012 buys Instagram, rubber stamp. Uh, so this really is a, a new frontier in uh, the FTC's philosophy on this. And is I mean, it's the FTC kind of saying to these companies, "Hey, we've got our, our
1: eye on you. Uh, just so you know, you know, as you're doing, as you're trying to gobble up any potential competition or get ahead of the competition, you, we're
2: we're going to have you're you're going to be under scrutiny from us." Right. Exactly. Uh, so perhaps Meta is now going to have to think twice before. Acquiring smaller companies, it's Hmm. still to their monetary advantage at this point. I think they could hedge and realize that the legal landscape isn't going to change drastically overnight. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh,
2: And from Meta's perspective, the FTC and its leadership hasn't answered the basic question here, which is how could Meta acquiring a single small fitness app in an incredibly dynamic market space possibly harm competition? And... I understand it theoretically. I understand what the FDC is saying about having to take action prospectively before uh, we have a situation where the market is completely cornered. Mm -hmm. But that's going to be a really hard case to make in court. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't argue that something's harming competition, which is the accepted prevailing legal standard, without seeing how the market itself actually develops. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think... Meta, while well, they see this as a, a potential warning, a shot across the bow, they're certainly pushing back on it. Their legal department is on it. Um, they are criticizing, criticizing the FTC for making this decision. I don't think they're necessarily panicked yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they see this as something they have to head off before it gains uh, additional steam. What if you're one of Meta's competitors who's interested in this
1: market? Like, you know, there's a lot of rumors that Apple is working on this kind of thing.
2: Uh this would have your attention as well, certainly. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think they're going after Meta out of some sort of personal vendetta, although if they did, you know, maybe that's understandable <laughs> to some people who just don't like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Uh, I think this applies to any company. I, th- I think this philosophy is going to apply to the big four. Uh, mm. So Apple, Meta, Amazon, and Google. mm the four companies that uh this really would apply to, the ones who are the the real titans in the industry. Yeah. So I don't think this is specific to Meta. If Apple tried to take an action like this and the FTC saw the potential for the market to be to be limited, the market to be cornered, I think they would take this the same action. So I think it's a warning uh to all of the the uh big titans in the industry.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me because I wonder, as you say, you know, you got the big four. Is this as much a signal that the that the FTC thinks that the big four might be a little too big? If 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 not too big, maybe too big for their britches.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think this is certainly a signal of that, and the FTC is not alone in believing that. We've seen and we've talked about bipartisan proposals in Congress to break up the big tech companies. Right. Some bills are stronger than others. The ones that pi- that pass might not actually. Um, curtail the power of these these four big companies. Uh, but there's certainly a belief that these companies have just become too powerful. Hmm. Uh, and we've had this situation in the country before, uh, prior to the existence of our digital universe. Mm-hmm. There's a reason trust-busting uh, became relevant in the early 1900s. It's because there was this sort of... Uh, concentration uh, of power in some of the major, three or four major companies that just controlled vast amounts of our economy and our industry. Uh, and it was really hurting the consumer. We had this gilded age where very few people were getting exorbitantly rich and the rest of us hmm. were suffering the consequences. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if our regulators. It and, said
1: saying history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. <laughs> history certainly does rhyme, right, uh, right.
2: and it's only been a century. I mean, this is not ancient ancient history. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I think the political tides kind of ebb and flow, and you can have kind of a period of let's let the market do what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not stifle innovation by right. limiting these types of acquisitions. The government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, but if it goes too far in the other direction, which I think you could certainly make the argument that's, that's happening now where you have these four power players who it's not just that they control this industry, but because of how ubiquitous devices and, Uh, some of these products are in our lives they really control our lives i mean Mm -hmm. how much of our of your day is spent interfacing with one of these four companies yeah i mean when i leave here i'm probably going to check my facebook page purchase (laughs) something on amazon uh, and you know check my gmail and and do a google search so it's so ubiquitous in our lives Mm -hmm. i think it's natural that we're seeing this sort of backlash I don't think we would have seen it at the FTC if it were not for this new slate of more anti-trust or I'd say these more uh, trust-busting-minded commissioners. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a result of of the Biden administration's priorities. And that certainly could be reversed under a future presidential administration. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, as you say, these things can swing back and forth. Absolutely. Uh, So I just think... The FTC doesn't expect to win this case, but as part of this process of swinging the pendulum back in the other direction, I think they see having a lot to gain from bringing the case even if they lose it. Yeah. Just to get this theory out there and just to put these big companies on notice that perhaps the landscape is changing, you should think twice before purchasing a a small application if if that's going to lead to monopolization. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will have a
1: link to that story in the show notes. Uh, My story this week comes from uh, Gizmodo. This is an article titled, These Companies Know When You're Pregnant and They're Not Keeping It Secret. Uh, This is written by Shoshana Wodinski and Kyle Barr. Um, You know, Ben, there's that famous story we've talked about many times about, uh, oh, there was the woman who got who was pregnant, and Target figured out she was pregnant before she was pregnant. Ah, yes, that girl. story that may or may not be true, but right. and sounds lo- true. It, it sounds true. It sounds true, and this story actually points out that uh, there is controversy as to whether or not it actually happened. Um, but this story does say that Target had indeed tasked someone on their team of figuring out if shoppers uh, were indeed pregnant, um, you know, using the um, what are they? The loyalty cards, right. you know, the, those sorts of things that uh, that they use uh, to collect your information in exchange for discounts. They collect your shopping information and then they sell that information to retailers. Yeah. And mm, others. this person
2: bought anti-nausea medication and mm-hmm, y- mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And a yes. crib
1: and diapers and a car seat and. Hmm. Yeah. I think <laughs> I think we know where this is going. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this article and, the, and we're going to dig into some of the details here. But, you know, you have kids. I have kids. So you and I have both been through the experience of being a young, excited, expectant couple. Mm-hmm. You know, your first child is coming along and, and you're just uh, you know, the anticipation is wonderful and you're you're excited about growing your family. And as part of that, I remember, and it's been a while since my kids were little, but I remember you do start getting things in the mail. Oh yeah, right. And but that's like for me, that was part of the fun, right? And for my wife as well, you know. Oh, look, it's a coupon for diapers. Mm, discount oh, look, on good. the diaper pail. Right. All right. Oh, look, yeah. So, you know, and little packages would come, and it was just part of the part of the journey. And I, so I think there's a side of this that that says, well, okay, that's great. You know, help help us with our our joyful journey to becoming new parents, right? So, but there's always a dark side. <laughs> that's right. And we wouldn't be talking about this mm-hmm. if there weren't. Um, things have changed recently, and uh, the Supreme Court uh, overthrew Roe v.ersus Wade, and that really puts the knowledge of someone expecting uh, in a different light. It's might not be the 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 need for someone to keep that information private uh, has a different uh, weight on it than it used to. Absolutely, yeah. So wh- let me check in with you on this, Ben. I mean, wh- what's your take so far?
2: So I mean, we've talked about this a little in the past couple of months since the Dobbs decision came down, right? Uh, but many states either already have or are in the process of criminalizing any abortion services. The next frontier of laws is going to center around how that is enforced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things like the right to travel to other states are going to come under the microscope. And state's attor- state attorneys general – I finally said that, right? <laughs> it's so uh, hard. <laughs> I know. They're going to start investigating individuals in kind of the uh, either-or cases where we're not sure if somebody has ab- uh, actually obtained an abortion. Mm-hmm. And because of the little crumbs of data that all of us leave in our wake uh, by having a smartphone or using the internet – there's going to be a lot of information out there that could be used to prosecute us uh, under some of these new statutes. So it's not just things like period tracking apps, which I think have gotten a disproportionate amount of the attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also things like collecting location information, uh, cell site location information, right, uh, or uh, doing uh, reviewing somebody's Google search history. Mm -hmm. Uh, or doing certain types of email surveillance. Uh, All of those things are going to be areas of vulnerability for people who aren't proactive in protecting their data, and most of us are not proactive in protecting our data. Most of us are proactive in clicking the accept button so that we can enjoy the conveniences of uh, these applications. Right. Uh, I think what this article is getting at is there's money in it for a lot of players, uh, to keep a close track on people who are pregnant, uh, either as expectant mothers or people who are pregnant and, and may not want to keep that uh, keep that pregnancy. Right. Uh, so there is a strong incentive, at least in the private sector, to sell that data, uh, purchase that data, and uh, use it to to make some of these companies are really rich. You mm-hmm. have a you can you can find your market pretty easily by collecting this data.
1: Yeah, this article points out that uh, the price per user uh, for individual reached uh, ranges between 49 cents and $2.25 to to get the information on someone who might be expecting. And you can understand why like if I'm someone selling formula or diapers and and I want to get some brand loyalty, that might be a worthwhile investment for me. Um, but again, you know, this, this article points out how, how easy it is to buy this information, how easy it is to access this information. And on the one side, you have the, the, uh, the marketing side, which I think, you know, as per our previous part of this conversation, I think we can understand, we can see the value in that. Um, but then there's the law enforcement side. And this article points out that there there has been a case where there's a woman who, according to the woman, had a miscarriage, but it sounds like law enforcement wasn't necessarily convinced that it was a miscarriage, that it might have been an illegal abortion, and so they used her Google search. They they, um, acquired her Google search information, uh, and this type of information is readily available as well. And so I think the... We talk here about the end around of users' Fourth Amendment uh, protections. This is an example of that, right? Yeah.
2: So obviously the primary concern is law enforcement getting a hold of this information through some type of lawful subpoena. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's not a warrant, you can usually obtain this information without a warrant. Um, But law enforcement getting its hands on it, that's our uh, primary concern. Yeah. There are some secondary concerns that I think are underappreciated. One is several states, starting with Texas, have these so-called bounty hunter laws, meaning hmm. you can sue in court against somebody who either had an abortion or aided in a, and abetted an abortion. And any person can sue under that statute. Yeah. Uh, so if a group, an individual or a group of bounty hunters wanted to purchase information, some type of, say geofence data on who was in a particular area that has an abortion clinic at a particular time Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very possible for them to purchase it there's no oversight since they are not uh, any type of government entity purchasing this data and they could make the data available uh, to everybody who's interested in in being a abortion bounty hunter in texas Hmm. Uh, so that's certainly one concern and then targeting women themselves, purchasing this data to uh, dox people, to attack people online, um, even to to find out where individuals live, go to their property, intimidate them. I think that there's certainly a risk there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not just limited to law enforcement getting its hands on the data. Again, most of the data is anonymized. We've talked about how it can be easily de-anonymized but even uh, if the government never gets its hands on it, there are just these attendant risks of having so much data out there on this regular, uh, relatively unregulated marketplace. Uh, and I think that's certainly raising the concern of uh, both some of the pro-choice activist groups and people who just care generally about electronic privacy. Can I ask a dumb question or or, or one that reveals my own ignorance on the topic? Yes, I love dumb questions. Sometimes they're (laughs) easy to answer.
1: Well, I I just find myself a bit gobsmacked at the notion that there may be attempts to restrict interstate travel. Um, I mean,
2: has that – like since slavery, has that been a thing? So because of what's called the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment – How that's been interpreted, including in a landmark case in the 90s, uh, there is a generally recognized constitutional right to travel from state to state. Hmm. In his concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who was part of the five justice majority, said that he sees no reason to challenge that generalized right to travel as it applies to people seeking abortions. Um, But that was what we call dicta. It wasn't binding. Uh, Nobody else joined his concurrence. Uh, And he could always change his mind if there's another case that presents itself uh, that relates to uh, somebody traveling across state lines. I think the concern is states themselves um, being emboldened by this series of anti-abortion judicial decisions are going to try and push the envelope. uh, Mm -hmm. So they could try to ban interstate travel for this particular purpose, um, they could do things as drastic as setting up checkpoints at um, d- across major interstates uh, to make sure people aren't traveling for the wrong reasons. Would uh, that hold up? At this point, I would say no, simply because of what Justice Kavanaugh said in his concurring opinion. If you combine that with the three liberals on the court and Chief Justice Roberts, who uh, didn't want... Roe v. Wade to be overturned, and the Dobbs decision, that gives you a pretty confident five-justice majority that would preserve this constitutional right to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, majorities are nimble. Justice Kavanaugh himself could change his mind. Uh, we could have a new president in 2025, mm-hmm. one of the liberal justices, Uh could drop dead one day and we get a replacement uh, that would feel differently. And then that right to interstate travel is at risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, the law is only as strong as the justices willing to uphold it. Mm. Uh, and I think it remains to be seen how this question of interstate travel to obtain abortions is going to play out in the long run. Yeah. Again, I mean, am I off base here just thinking that this is a wacky thing to even be considering? No, you're not off base. I mean, I don't think many people thought we would get to this point in our lifetimes. Uh, But we, something that seemed off base 10 years ago, which was a wholesale overturning of of Roe v. Wade, um, that did happen. Right. Uh, It was overturned lock, stock, and barrel. So I think we have to at least be on guard about some of these other threats. Mm -hmm. Um, People have focused on Justice Thomas's concurrence when. He mentioned some of these other rights that could be in jeopardy, the right to marriage equality, uh, the right to uh, contraceptives. So I think these are things we have to be on guard for and the right to interstate travel I think is certainly one of them, even though it doesn't appear at the moment that it has five justices uh, willing to to change jurisprudence on that.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, it's fascinating and uh, as they say, interesting times. Sure is. (laughs) Okay. We will have a link to that story uh, from Gizmodo. Uh, Again, we would love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at cyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Voda. He is the CEO of a company called OptiMine. Uh, Matt is a consumer privacy advocate uh, and also an expert in marketing. Um, And so our conversation centers on how some of these uh, laws that are potentially coming through, uh, specifically a federal privacy act, may impact the advertising tech industry and ultimately consumers. Here's my conversation with Matt Voda.
0: It's one of only a handful of issues that has bipartisan support. Um, There was a morning consult survey done in 2021 that, that indicated that about 86% of Democrats and 81% of Republicans said Congress would make privacy a top priority. Um, so, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, there's good alignment across the parties. But despite that, we're still in the situation where there's relatively little movement on a specific regulation. There have been many proposals, uh, many bipartisan proposals made really nothing that's made any traction of late. And and there's several reasons for that. But, um, you know, the the current state today is that, you know, you've got states filling the vacuum of, uh, you know, a lack of federal action on consumer privacy. Very little movement happening at a national level.
1: And and where do we stand with the states? I mean, I I think uh, California is generally considered to be leading the way with
0: these things, yes? Absolutely. California was the first with... um, California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, and that was amended with something called CPRA, which strengthened the the original regulation and also created an enforcement function within the state of California. But we have four other states that that have rolled out similar privacy regulations. We have Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia, and Utah. And then there are about eight additional states that have active bills um, in their regulatory pipelines, really covering every 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 corner of the of the u s. So the states are moving. Um, th- there's also bipartisan support at the state level, which is why we see this this patchwork quilt kind of emerging state by state. You know, consumers care about it. Um, we've got good alignment from a regulatory standpoint across parties. But again, um, very little action at the federal level
1: now, I know one of your areas of expertise is marketing. Uh, how is all this affecting brands and, and their ability
0: to do the things they want to do in terms of customer engagement? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's becoming more difficult. And, you know, brands are impacted in a lot of different ways when a new privacy regulation comes into play. Um, many brands are using PII or personally identifiable information for advertising targeting, for personalization on their digital properties, and also brands are are using identity for advertising measurement as well, for marketing attribution. And so as each state comes online with their own form of privacy regulation and and the right for consumers to be forgotten or to have their data not be sold or traded, those introduce uh, gaps and missing data um, for the brand's in, in performing these functions. And so as more and more uh, people opt out, it becomes harder for brands to to conduct these these types of activities.
1: Are there brands out there who are being successful without these types of tools? I mean, I suppose that, you know, as, as an old timer, I could say that, you know, there was a time before they had these available and it seemed like the big brands did just fine. Is, is this a matter of uh, they've become accustomed to these and don't want to let them go?
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, um, what's old is new again. Uh, many brands from a measurement perspective used a technique called marketing mix modeling, and um, that has been around for a good 40 or 50 years. And it was it was developed to help uh, large consumer brands measure the impact of, of very large TV campaigns and, and the incremental effects of those, those TV ads on sales of their products. And um, with the advance of of AI and machine learning and high-speed computing, um, there's been a renaissance in in that space with more modern techniques. And as brands look for more privacy-forward ways or or safe, future pure-proof options, um, they're embracing some some more traditional techniques that that have gotten a new look.
1: How much of what we're seeing in terms of you know this not being able to make its way through Congress is. Is that a result of some of the big tech companies and their own lobbying you know the the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world who a large part of their income is is dependent on this?
0: yeah, for sure. I think that you know facebook the the entire business model of Facebook is predicated on on consumer tracking and and collecting an enormous amount of of information about the consumers that that use their services, and to some degree, I think that that um their, their lobbying has an effect. Although I think the big walled gardens are probably on the wrong side of this from a regula- regulation standpoint. And one of the reasons why there's been, you know, slowing momentum on the privacy front is that regulators are taking aim at uh, Meta and others from an antitrust standpoint. And so those efforts have, have taken priority over uh, consumer data privacy regulations. So, ironically, you know they they've kind of moved up to the front of the line from a regulatory standpoint, but it's it's really been focused on antitrust.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I think when we were on the verge of having GDPR come into effect, there was a thought that perhaps that would become the the global lowest common denominator. You know, that it would be easiest for for companies who are doing global business. To adhere to that, um, and then I think we saw a similar thing with CCPA, where perhaps that could become the the, the common denominator. Has that happened? Are, are the the brands out there, the marketers, the those companies, are they trying to weave together this patchwork and and come up with something that kind of fits everywhere?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, you can trace a pretty clear line from GDPR all the way through to CCPA, and even. Even um, other states that have passed their own privacy regulations, there's a, a great degree of overlap in in approach. And I think it's smart for brands who are trying to get out ahead of this to, to try to take a, a common denominator approach in terms of their own compliance, in terms of their own marketing operations. There's a whole chain of custody issue here from a, a marketing technology standpoint that, that most brands have to think about. And it, and it relates to... Something as simple as a consumer asking a brand to wipe out their data or to to stop tracking them. The brand has to to prove that they've honored that request. And that's not a simple act. It it typically will touch many different source systems, even third-party vendors and and outside applications that may have a, a, a slice of the view of that consumer. And so there's there's a lot of work in terms of complying to this and um, brands, I think, would prefer to take a, a, a singular approach that uh, assures compliance across, you know, the variety of regulations that, that are emerging state by state, and that's part of the problem with the lack of of federal federal uh, regulation. We have, you know, state by state uh, regs that, that are all slightly different, and that creates a lot of complexity for brands who who do want to comply. And, you know, you've got even small differences that, that create uh, these issues uh, for compliance teams at, at brains that, that uh, are going to get worse, you know, as more and more states take matters into their own hands, you know, lacking federal action.
1: Where do you suppose we're headed, you know, for the, the organizations that, that want to try to come out, be on the other side of this with some sort of competitive advantage? What sort of guidance are you providing?
0: Well, we, um, we do believe that this is going to get more complicated. Um, I'm of the belief that, that uh, there won't be any near-term federal action. Part of that is due to uh, a disagreement about the, the role the FTC would play in enforcement. There's disagreement, you know, despite the, the broader agreement around the need for consumer privacy, that the parties aren't aligned in terms of what the FTC will do or not do. And there's also um, disagreement across the parties in terms of private right of action. And we see some of that um, state by state. California has unlimited private right of action. Uh, Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia do not. And those are are complicating factors and and they create um, complex issues for brands who who wanna comply as well. Smart brands um, and typically larger brands that probably already have a a compliance function, uh, are well-suited, have the resources to, to tackle this we'll get out ahead of this because not only is it a reputational risk, but, but now some of these state regulations have real financial teeth. So smart, kind of planful brands uh, are already moving out ahead of this. And I think that they'll be monitoring the state by state activities and, and building in processes and, and teams that uh, will work with, uh, with the marketing and, and CRM groups within the brands to, to keep the, the safeguards in place. Um, there may also interestingly be an emerging technology market opportunity for uh, compliance tools to to make this easier for for brands. It's kind of a white space in the market right now, and brands need uh, a singular solution. You know, there, there's a vacuum there in terms of, of technical capabilities as well. But um, as I said, there there are larger brands who have regulatory functions who have compliance functions already in place, and they'll, they'll tend to do better because they have the, the wherewithal to, to get out ahead of this. For brands that don't, I think there, there's a lesson to be learned um, that there, there's investment that's needed. And it isn't just uh, you know a privacy officer that deals with privacy policies. There's real technology implications here as well in terms of uh, how data is handled. As I said, the chain of custody questions that come into play. Uh, that prove compliance, um, you know, back to, to regulators.
2: Ben, what do you think here? Yeah, I mean, I think tech companies have gotten somewhat comfortable in the past couple of years. Um, they've learned how to comply with GDPR and then certain state-level laws relating to data privacy, specifically CCPA. Right. So I think they're kind of in a comfort zone there. Uh, that could change overnight if a federal data privacy law is enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so brands are going to have to reconsider how they do advertising depending on how uh, legislation is written. Uh I think the open question, of course, is can a federal data privacy law actually pass Congress? Yeah. Uh, and what exactly would it look like? How watered down would it be? How broad would its application be? And would it preempt stronger state regulations that currently exist uh, to protect data privacy? And I just think we don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, it's another one of those, let's wait and see. Uh, I think uh, companies are going to be uh, watching with the same interest we are to see what how many new compliance officers they need to hire to <laughs> to sort through uh, right. to sort That's through right. whatever mess congress uh,
1: decides to enact.
2: That's right.
1: All right, well again, our thanks to Matt Voda from Optimine for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter kilpey I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.